Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am great. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Welcome to my podcast on how to grow in a higher education institution. Um, and uh, I know you've been doing that for years um, at, at, uh, at your institution and um, would love your thoughts on how you did that as provost and continue to explore those areas in your podcast, Ingenious. Um, so let's, let's get started. I think my first question is, what do you see as the barriers to growth in higher education? Yeah, well, if you don't mind, I'd like to back into that question um, by talking a little bit about the experience that I've had, because my experience certainly does inform what I've learned about what works and, and doesn't work. So as you said, I've had quite a bit of experience. I did serve as a provost, uh, chief academic officer at a small uh private independent institution for 10 years. And during my time, first as founding dean of the graduate school and then as provost, I led the development of 40 plus new academic programs, which- sorry, how many? 40, 40 plus. Wow. That's at the undergrad and at the grad, includes certificate programs, um, which resulted in a net incremental increase over that time in tuition revenue of well over $300 million. So you can imagine that for a small resource constrained institution, um, that was a very significant increase. And the reason I mentioned that is because that tuition revenue allowed the institution to be able to experiment, um, to take that revenue and then use it to invest in some things that were really important for the institution uh, such as the development of a, a fir the first online uh, women's college in America, uh, as well as having the resources to invest in uh, the infrastructure of the campus to build a new health, health sciences building, for example, without having to, to take on much debt um, and, and many other things. And so um, it, was, it was great fun, um, but as you can imagine, I learned a lot. I learned a lot in the process. Um, and so back to your question about barriers, um, you know, what I, what I have learned is that, uh, you know, there are, uh, there is a certain mindset, I think, that one needs to cultivate, particularly as the chief academic officer on a campus uh, in order to cultivate growth and uh, an appreciation for growth because there is so much in the culture of the typical college and university that, that gets in the way of trying to do anything that might be different or, or new. Higher education is by its very nature, a very traditional kind of organizational um, uh, entity. And so, and I could, you know, we could unpack that. We could probably have an old, a whole podcast on, you know, what are some of those things, uh, you know, that that keep things from uh, from being uh, from being change uh, oriented. But let me stop there and see where you want to go with that. Well, um, I think the question of culture is very interesting. Um, what else do you see in the culture that would stop you from growing? I mean, growing could be a part of the tradition. Um, and I think is at some colleges, um, but uh, it doesn't sound like that in this case. Well, I think 
you know, there's, there is, there's just so much about the way colleges and, and uh, universities are organized. You have external forces that can make growth or change. And, and, and let me talk about, about this in terms of change, because I think that's what we're really talking about. When you are trying to grow or to introduce new innovations, you're really talking about changing something. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot invested on the typical college or university campus in keeping things the way they are. So for example, there are forces that are external to the institution. So accrediting bodies, accrediting bodies for the most part are by their very nature, pretty traditional. Um, there's a lot of loopholes that you have to run through. If you, if you look at the typical uh, standards for a regional accrediting body, the kinds of things by which you are evaluated are, are, are very, they're not, they're not innovation oriented necessarily. They have to do with things like, you know, how big is your faculty? How big is your full-time faculty? How many holdings do you have in your library? What are your resources? And so, those standards by and large uh, are not necessarily uh, looking at uh, the question of how might the institution cultivate change or do something different. And so you have, you have that. You have for most colleges and universities, you have constituencies that don't necessarily want you to change. I, I often tell the story, it's an old story now, but of Sweetbriar College, that uh, nearly went under back in, oh gosh, 2015, right? 2016. Yeah, maybe a little later, but yeah. And it was the alumni that came forward when the president and the senior administration made the decision to close down the institution. They, they came forward and put up a yeoman's job. They were called an army, actually, in the press, the local press, because of the strong effort and successful effort, they were able to put to put forward to take back the keys of the campus. And so every college or university, particularly the independent ones, have have these um, uh, these forces. You know, it, it could be an alumni. You, I call them keepers of the tradition mm. on every campus. You have people that have a vested interest in wanting to keep things the way they are. And so I often will tell new new chief academic officers, make sure you spend some time finding out who those people are. Um, and and the, those people may change according to what the topic is. So you may have some people who deeply, deeply care about athletics and they don't want anything to change or they may have particular uh, um, things that, that, you know, they they want, uh, they have a vested interest in. So it could be athletics, it could be performing arts, you know, it could be a particular academic majors, but it's always worth your while to take a little time to, to make sure you know, you know, who, who those folks are that have a vested who interest. Who the constituencies are and what they're advocating for. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then you have the faculty, the whole tenure system, right? The tenure system, uh, is uh, structured in such a way so that faculty are not necessarily being rewarded, are they, to be uh, thinking out of the box, to be innovating, to do 
uh, you know, different kinds of research beyond what is uh, considered to be, um, you know, uh, in keeping with whatever the professional norms are uh, at, at any one point in time. Faculty are socialized for the most part uh, according to the, the professional norms and culture in which they get their doctoral degrees or their terminal degrees. And so uh, those, those sorts of norms and cultures, again, from outside of the institution, but then they find their way into the institution mm -hmm. uh, and have a really powerful uh, force in terms of keeping the faculty grounded and thinking a certain way. Um, and then you multiply that, right? You, you look at all the different departments and disciplines that are represented on a campus and um, the the norms and the, the cultural forces that are at play uh, in terms of how those faculty have been shaped. And, you know, it's any wonder uh, that any change ever happens, right? When you think about all of these, all of these forces at, at play in, at any given moment. Well, you know, it's funny. We often criticize higher ed for that, but having spent the first 20 years of my career consulting to large corporations, not that different. Uh, they like to think they change really fast, but most don't. Um, and they have a variety of constituencies too, you know, who want to tether them to what they've been, whether that's the finance guys who don't want them to invest in risky new ventures um, or the board members who see them as X or the employees who legitimately see their jobs being threatened as we move into a new future. Uh, which is, you know, I, I think back to one of my clients is in the telephone business and they were actually in the long distance business. Well, when was the last time you paid a long distance bill? <laughs> True. Um, right. That entire industry disappeared. Um, and trying to fight that trend was, uh, you know, great work, um, but it was doomed and they just could not innovate fast enough. Even though I think yeah, I was working with them in the 90s, they didn't really uh, get crushed until the early 2000s. They saw it coming, but they couldn't maneuver their way out of it. And they made a couple of bad decisions along the way. But so I just say that by way of uh, we shouldn't. All these characteristics are really characteristics of human organizations, um, regardless of form. And uh, higher ed's not unique in, in having those. Doesn't make them any easier to deal with, by the way. Um, but uh, you can be very slow and be a corporation as well. Um, I think I think that's true. However, this notion of faculty governance. Mm. is something that I think is a little unique uh, to the higher ed environment and culture and the belief. And it plays out differently on, on a campus according to how, how deeply entrenched and how, how faculty governance is actually um, operationalized and understood. Um, but it, it, it can make it a little bit trickier because it, it carries with it the sense that faculty have uh, a right to have ownership into the curriculum for sure, how the curricula is taught and delivered, but the, the boundaries in terms of, you know, what, what constitutes an appropriate faculty governance issue and what doesn't uh, has gotten increasingly uh, obscure. And so that can make for that can make for some real interesting tension tension points. So let's say you have a new president, new provost who comes onto a campus, and you know they 
they uh, they want to see new programs develop. They want to see uh, certain things happen with the academic program portfolio um, for whatever reason. Um, that that will land those leaders oftentimes right in the the midst of the faculty governance uh, context um, and and the cultural issues that emerge from that. Yeah, um, that's true up up to a point. I mean, I I think it depends a lot on the faculty, right? Um, in in terms of what they want to accomplish. Um, I see one of the threats to growth and actually survival. Um, in uh, something I'm going to step out there and call suicidal faculty. <laughs> um, the idea that we can, you know, uh, postpone change by resisting it is uh, fraught with danger. Um, and not all faculty have this perspective, but there are some believe, who believe that clinging to the past is somehow going to stave off the future. And the future is kind of not like that. It's a little bit like people who don't believe in climate change. It doesn't stop the rain in Houston. Um, and so I think that's just that. And by the way, this same force exists in many corporations um, in, in different forms. Um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's, I, I, my job is threatened. So I'm going to try and keep the corporation. By the way, that could be a vice president's job was threatened for moving into a new field. Um, when, you know, if, if the long distance business is going to end you know, you, you better find the next thing um, it, or nobody's going to have a job. Um, and in fact, many of those companies don't exist anymore. Uh, so uh, without getting that draconian, though, I mean, I think it's you've really got to resist these, um, as I say, sort of suicidal impulse to cling to the past. Um, nothing you can do as a buggy whip manufacturer is going to stop buggy whips from going away. Um you can transition, and there are one or two companies, by the way, that did that. Um, but it's one or two out of hundreds. Um, but not by clinging to the past after its after its due date has expired. Um, so, I think that's just another one of these uh, these potential forces. And uh, I look at some of the really uh, eminent leaders in higher ed who've really done something extraordinary um, at ASU, for example. My recollection is he's had two faculty votes of no confidence. Um, and I wonder if, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I wonder if uh, a visionary um, president who's really going to be successful in moving a, a college forward and getting it to grow shouldn't expect um, a vote of no confidence and be prepared for it. I think that's a that's a very interesting um insight uh as you know we're seeing more of those these days we're seeing uh many more votes of no confidence i i think in some ways the vote of no confidence doesn't mean what it used to mean um because because they're becoming um so so much more commonplace and oftentimes the board will dismiss you know if the board and the president are on the same page and connected at the hip, so to speak, um, and and the board is supporting whatever actions are that the the leadership is taking. Then the the vote of no confidence is is nothing more than a a, a symbolic vote, perhaps action, and something that maybe releases the safety valve, 
you know, releases a little bit of the, but it, it, it doesn't really uh, have much, much that's consequential. So um, I think you're right. I think, I, I, I think this environment in which we're now living calls for uh, a different kind of toughness and courage on the part of the leadership, because I, I do think, um, you know, you need to be willing. And I, as you know, I host the Ingenious podcast. And so I have now interviewed well over a hundred leaders who have done some incredible things, including, um, including Michael Crow. And uh, what I have been struck by is how many of them have talked about the need to have a steely interior that you just can't care in a way you do care. And yet, you know, if you care too much about what people think, what they have said to a person is you'll never do the things you need to do to move the institution forward. And so I think having that steely interior is critical. You know, at the same time, and and this is certainly true for, for Michael Crow, as it is for the others, is what you hear from them is a real commitment to maximizing the value and the contributions of the faculty and the staff and um, finding ways to do that so that faculty are investing and contributing in a productive way uh, is I think a really smart way to turn the tides if you can. Now there will always, always be faculty who are suicidal. You know, that that's just the nature of the, the business. You can't get away from that. But to whatever extent uh, a, a chief academic officer, a provost, a dean, can figure out how to maximize and galvanize the goodwill and the energy of the faculty. And sometimes it just starts with one or two, a small group, um, to, to get their creative juices flowing in a positive direction. That can do more than any kind of a top-down mandate or order. Yeah. I, I remember, let me give you an example. Um, when we were trying to institute several years ago an iPad initiative, we wanted we wanted to get our faculty uh, using the iPad uh, in, as a part of transforming and rethinking the way they were teaching. Um, we wanted to get them out from behind their podiums and adopt a much more uh, active, experiential way of of teaching uh, with their students. And so uh, we brought in a, an incredible trainer. And, I, and I, I remember there was a lot of resistance on the front end um, to the idea, which was initiated by us, but we had a Title III grant that paid for putting iPads in the hands of all the faculty. So they were, they were quite happy to have these iPads to play with. Um, maybe for a personal reason at first, right? They, they liked having these, these shiny new toys, but, um, but then there were a handful of faculty that got really, really jazzed. They started playing and experimenting and uh, they were having great luck and great success. And they became the champions and role models 
for other faculty. And pretty soon it caught on and it was really exciting because there was nothing that the deans or I had to do to, you know, to, to really get this going. It, it became, it was like a, a wildfire. It became, took on a life of its own. And I think to whatever extent you can create the conditions, and that's really what it was, creating the conditions to nurture that, that creative thinking on the part of your faculty, and then nurture it, shape it, but you don't have to be in the middle necessarily leading it. Mm. Your chances of, of it being more successful and accepted is going to be much more significant. And that's going back to these ingenious leadership um, interviews. That's what I heard time and again. Helen Drynan, who was a legend in the Boston area, I think you may know she is responsible for turning around Simmons um, and doing some incredible innovations at Simmons that took the school from the brink of disaster to hugely uh, financially positive uh, position when she retired from there. Uh, she talks about how when they first tried to do online, it it didn't take. It, it was not very successful. And then they took another run at it with the nursing faculty because the nursing faculty had an interest there were there was one or two faculty in the uh, in the the nursing department that was really interested in how might we do this a little bit differently um for for whatever reason and so their first endeavor with 2U was with nursing graduate nursing mm -hmm. which really set the stage then for uh just a, an incredibly successful uh initiative yeah, I, I... I heard you her say that, uh, that those programs turned out to be the endowment for the institution. Um, and some, and some, but it started with nursing and a small group of faculty. And she said she found it interesting when she would go to faculty meetings. And after a while, she started to hear the question from other faculty who were resistant at first, wanting to know, well, how could our program generate some revenues like this? Because they saw their colleagues in the nursing department getting all of these resources coming back to them. And resources on most college and university campuses speaks volumes to faculty. If they have the resources to work with, that can be, um, you know, that can be a really uh, effective uh, tool for helping to, you know, helping to grow that creative spirit. You know, it's an interesting point, and I, I want to make sure that uh, we probably need a better phrase uh, for this, but um, uh, self-destructive faculty is probably the right way to think about it. But it's really, there's a self-destructive instinct, again, everywhere. And and I think the flip side of that is uh, I can't think of a, an inst a type of institution that actually has a more dedicated, fundamentally committed workforce than higher ed, um, except maybe you know, lower levels in education. Um, teachers, faculty members uh, really care in a way about what they do. And I think it, it may be part of why they resist change, um, but there's a caring there. Once you figure out how to light it up, which is I think what you're talking about, that really is very deep seated um, and in a type of intrinsic motivation that uh, 
can be extremely powerful. So um, I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm really glad you raised that point, because my experience has been even with the most incalcitrant faculty member. Oftentimes, if you peel the onion down to what's at their core, it really is coming from a place of deep dedication to the institution and a love of their students. And however they got there in their thinking, oftentimes they're motivated by thinking that this change that you are proposing is going to somehow be detrimental to their students. And so if you can help them see that the change in fact will benefit their students. So for example, and I've had this conversation with faculty who have been resistant to online. And when you get to the place where you're talking about, well, let's think about who's in your classroom. You know, let's talk about who these students are. You know, the fact that these are students who are from a socioeconomically uh, disadvantaged kinds of backgrounds. Um, they may not have the means always to get to campus if they're commuting. Mm -hmm. They have access issues. But if you can somehow use technology and use online learning to make education more accessible to these same students, I've seen the light bulb go on for these faculty who then said, oh, gosh, I never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that makes sense because they are keenly aware. These are the faculty who oftentimes are the ones spending hours with their students outside mm -hmm. of class, trying to help their students be successful. So I'm really glad you I'm really glad you made that point, because that is, in fact, um, and, and one other thing that I think is really critical is if a faculty member feels valued by the administration. So in other words, if the, if, the, if, if the administration, chief academic officer, whoever it is, is trying to institute change, can communicate uh, respect, and if they can take the time to really see the faculty member and to be able to communicate that what that they get, that the work that this faculty member is doing is valuable, and that they are seen, that also goes a long ways. And I, I can't tell you how often people don't take the time to do that, right? Mm -hmm. They barge in and they start trying to make change without, without really trying to understand first and foremost, what's the world that this faculty member is living in and what matters to them and, and convey that, that, that you respect what they're doing and you get how valuable and how important their work is. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's turn the corner. Uh, what things have you seen be successful in helping higher education institutions to grow? Um, oh gosh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's again, that's another topic. That's a topic for a, a podcast in and of itself. Um, you know, my experience, my direct experience is in growing new academic programs. And so maybe I can I can talk about that uh, as a starting point and then um, branch out from there in mm -hmm. terms of uh, what I'm hearing from 
the leaders that I'm I'm interviewing because I will say these interviews are so it's like my dose of positive optimism whenever I have one of these interviews because it's really very exciting. Um, anybody who says or thinks that higher education is going down the tubes just needs to listen to some of these interviews because there are so many exciting uh, and really encouraging innovations that are taking place across the landscape uh, of our country in terms of what's happening. So, um, you know, in terms of, in terms of, so let me start by, I'm going to focus in on uh, what I think works uh, with growing academic, growing academic programs, and maybe back into that by talking a little bit about my own philosophy, which I think you're familiar with. Um, but I think, I think looking at the academic portfolio, first and foremost, uh, in a broad way, is a really important uh, mindset, and is something that I think helps academic leaders make better decisions at the end of the day. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Oftentimes, when people are coming in, particularly new leaders, and trying to figure out, well, what might we do? You know, what's a, what's a new academic program we could bring up? Or, you know, where are some synergies or efficiencies that we could find? Oftentimes, they dig in and look at programs in a silo-esque kind of way, if mm -hmm. you will. I have long believed that that doesn't that doesn't get you very far because the academic portfolio itself is a very dynamic kind of um, entity, if you will. I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but but, you know, you you have interactions right between programs Um you know, you and, and I know this is your whole philosophy in terms of the gray system when uh, you're advising people in terms of the, the scorecard. It's very similar to how a financial investment manager might look at an investment portfolio. So you want to consider the entirety, the entire portfolio of programs in the collective kind of way. It's the entire portfolio at the end of the day that will help you see where the possibilities are, where the synergies are, you know, asking some really good questions about, you know, does the collective nature of what we're offering best reflect who we are, who we want to be, who we aspire to be as an institution? If not, where are the holes? Where are the gaps? Where are the potential synergies? between programmatic areas. You know, where are we doing some great things at the undergrad that if we were to expand to the graduate or to the adult market in some unique way that we could capitalize on in terms of particular particular opportunities. Uh, and so it, it, it's really important to consider the interactions between programs, both within a particular program area, the vertical, but also the horizontal in terms of where do you have some strength that you could expand upon fairly easily? The other thing I will say, it, 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 it's too easy for new leaders to jump in and say, well, that, that program isn't delivering enough 
revenue, enough money for us. So we just need to cut it down. That is one of the biggest mistakes that you can make until you've really looked at your program mix holistically, because it may be that you have a program that is a jewel of a program in terms of contributing to your mission, to your reputational strength that you really need to hold on to. And making the decision or making the case to hold on to it is a lot easier if you understand the revenue mix of the entire portfolio, because maybe you can grow some programs over here that will free up the resources to invest in another program that is a contributor and an important contributor, but maybe not as much from a financial financial perspective. And so I know I'm singing your song here, right? It's it's the collective. I'm the willing collective. to be a little tougher on stop than you probably are. Um, I do think that, you know, if you think of, uh, and this is such a physical metaphor, it may be inappropriate, but um, to me, the academic portfolio, the program portfolio is the effectively the beating heart of a higher education institution. It really Indeed. is what you do. Well, that means you, you've got to keep it fit. Um, and some of that is making sure you're exercising, you're running, you know, you're producing enough students for the amount of in resource you're putting in, or else it just gets, you know, unfit and that's dangerous. Um, I think the other part is you got to watch out for arteriosclerosis, you know, stuff that's just left behind and nobody really knows why it's there, but it's hanging out and it's, you know, beginning to block arteries and stop the blood flow to things that you, where you need it. Um, and, uh, just like the human body, I mean, you, you can't just go in and roto-rooter it. Uh, that's, you know, <laughs> it, 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 making the change takes time. Um, it's, a, it's delicate um, and, uh, it, and it requires a commitment, an ongoing commitment to the fitness of the portfolio, not just an event. Um, and, you know, if you will, just cutting a program is a little bit like open heart surgery. Um, it can be done if it's necessary, fine. Um, but oftentimes um, there's a risk reward ratio there that if you can find a more uh, a lower risk way to accomplish the same objective, it's, you know, you might get to a much better place. Um, so exactly. And that's really my point. So you're actually making my my end point here is I I am not a big fan of cutting programs wholesale. If there is another way to address or to grow or to uh, reinvent an opportunity. Because I, I, I don't think, I have not seen the cutting of programs wholesale to necessarily generate I the have, kind of return. I've never that seen think. what I would call wholesale cuts um, be beneficial. When we do this work, and we've now done it with hundreds of institutions, you're going to find, you know, out of a portfolio of 100, 150 programs, there might be five where, you know, there's really no there there anymore. There are not really any students. Generally, there's not, you know, there's the faculty increasingly constrained. Um, so the funny part about it is you get all done and, you know, you make the cuts and they're always uh, uh, generally a lot of heat relative. And there's really not very much money involved um, because, yeah. you know, by definition, they're small. Um, that means they're not, they don't have that much resource and so forth. So it, it again, it's, it's, I think keeping up with that so it's always a small event um, 
is important because you don't want it to get to the point where it becomes something where uh, a broader cut is appropriate. Um, but again, I've never seen that situation where a broader cut was appropriate. I've seen places where tuning it made sense. Um, and the other thing that's so important with that negative part of this is that you've got to do it with some grace and style. Um, you know, you these are human beings who often generated their entire or dedicated their entire career to right. teaching at the institution. There are ways to handle that. Um, yeah, that aren't as disruptive and are respectful of the individuals involved. Um, yeah. And if you don't do that, you create a whole bunch of resistance to the things you need support for. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, well, yeah. well, you know, we would have had we had we taken this literally back in 2000, I think it was 2003, when the OT profession took a huge nosedive because of regulatory issues with the profession, we would have foreclosed on huge opportunity that then was in our lap because we stayed in the business of OT. Back when everybody was cutting their MOT programs, we stayed in the business. We downscaled a little bit, but we we kept at it. And then lo and behold, the profession turned around, the regulations changed, and it became quickly our biggest revenue producer. And we were able to do it quickly because we were already in the business. So that may be a bit of a unique, a unique situation. But, you know, for me, the lesson was, boy, you just have to be really careful if you're going to take yourself totally out of uh, an academic uh, market area. Um, and, you know, there again, there may be reasons. There may be reasons to do yeah. so, but. You run across I mean, some, you know, again, but it's, you got to be careful. It doesn't derail the process um, because it's, there's just not that much money involved usually. Um, exactly. You're making yeah. what can be a very disruptive, uh, but ultimately small benefit um, that can sidetrack much more substantial yeah. opportunities. Yeah. So the other, so, so. So if you're not going to find money from cutting, where do you find it? Well, that's. You, that's my next, you're, you're ahead of me, Bob. <laughs> so, cause that's my, so there, there are two, two kind of two buckets, if you will, of philosophical um, thinking that I've always maintained in terms of new academic program development. So one is the portfolio mindset. The second is this science and art mindset that I think academic leaders have to cultivate. Now, the science side of things uh, is all about having a discipline around your process of managing the portfolio. And so that's the kind of thing you and I are talking about here is staying on top of and, and you know having good data, good metrics that make sense that you're watching on a regular basis. The other the other side, though, is the art. And unfortunately, that gets lost sight of uh, way too often and increasingly so. I, I don't I hear I hear a lot of institutions, a lot of academic leaders talking about the discipline side of things that they're they're using the scorecards and they're, you know, they're they're being very diligent. But I'm not I'm not hearing or seeing the same kind of attention being given to the the if you will the softer the softer side of this process and that softer may be the wrong word to use here but 
but it it involves creativity. It involves you know some of those um, uh, those ways of finding opportunities that may not be right in front of you unless you know how to to look for them. You know, so for example, one of the things I used to do as provost, I mean, I, I have always loved this notion that uh, that academic leaders need to think like futurists. David Staley, who's at the Ohio State, who is a futurist and a historian. Don't you love that? You're, you're a historian. He prides himself on holding both of those things in his mind at the same time. And, you know, his thinking about what it means to be a futurist you know, something I've always been drawn to, because I do think you have to, just as you have a discipline around the process and the metrics with your academic program portfolio, you can also have a discipline about being a futurist. And so, for example, how how do you do that? You, you uh, scan trends on a regular basis. There's a number of great sources that you can you know, that you can plug into so that you're exposing yourself to thinking about the future. You can scan your competitors. I used to, I used to be uh, a little crazy about this. I was always looking at, you know, what our competitors were doing in terms of programs that they were, that they were bringing up um, and looking for possible good ideas. And, and, you know, there there is nothing wrong with copying what somebody else is doing as long as it makes sense for your institution and you do it in a way that makes sense for your institution. And so some of our best ideas actually over the years for new academic programs actually originated in seeing what another institution did with something, taking it, doing the research, and then figuring out how does that fit uh, the mission, the context for our for our institution. Um, there's a, a number of things you can do going back to what an academic leader, a dean can do to foster creativity um, with the faculty to get some of those ideas coming forward from them. So for example, you know, sending a group of faculty to uh, to a really innovative institution to, you know, look at what they're doing. You can do this virtually these days. You can do a, you know, a, a Zoom call, a webinar um, with uh, faculty that are in a, a an area that you might be interested in just to do some brainstorming. Um, looking outside the academy is one of the best ways to get ideas. Um, and so, for example, you know, talking to employers of, uh, some of your undergrads or your grads in particular programs, picking their brains for what's going on in in a particular professional area to find out what's what's on their radar. What do they see coming down coming down the the pike? Yeah, talking to your. Oh, go ahead. You know, I I think of this. We do this about once a year with um, we call emerging programs. Um, mm -hmm. where you know the data, the traditional data sources just haven't caught up yet. Um, yes. You know, it's a basic issue with uh, something called the, you know, the SIP codes, um, which is how most educational data is organized, classification of instructional program. They only update those about once every 10 years. Well, there's a lot that happens in 10 years. And uh, so you have to have a way of looking at data that's not contained in 
in those little buckets. Um, exactly. I think yeah, there exactly. Are, there are a bunch of sources here. Um, I don't know which ones you use, but uh, you know, first it sounds awful, but you know, DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Program, what are they up to? You know, uh, you're not going to build weapons, or you maybe you are, but um, they're often really fundamental areas of research that they're funding um, that are very out on the cutting edge. Um, venture capital funding is another indicator yep. of what's yes. out on the cutting edge. And you can find out what people are investing in there, published studies on, you know, where the money's flowing right now. Um, as I recall, biotech's very hot. Um, you know, there are a series of these uh, more out, of course, labor market data, but labor market data is more about actually what's happening right now. Exactly. Uh, you can still see yeah. trends, things that are emerging. Um, but that has its classification problems again. Um, so maybe it's down at the skill level where you can you begin to escape that uh, classification trap. You know, there's no, when I say that, it's, you know, there's no structure for this yet, so you can't see it. Um, yeah. So you have to have some way of looking at raw data than that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think those are all great sources. You know, Paul LeBlanc at Southern New Hampshire University told me a few years ago that one of the things that he liked to do is to take his senior team out to the Futurist uh, organization, and I cannot remember the name of it, out in California every year. And they would do an on-site retreat, just immerse themselves in this kind of thinking, um, which now all of us don't have the resources to do that sort of thing. But there are other ways to, to immerse yourself into, you know, the, the thinking and the, the futuristic kind of, Sometimes just watching uh, sci-fi movies, you mm. know, and, and you know, letting yourself imagine, you know, what might this, what might this look like? So, um, you know, another another uh, really easy uh, way is to uh, spend time talking to your students and your graduates. You know, we got into genetic counseling before. And while it was still, you know, a pretty, um, uh, how do I say this? Before it was as hot as I think it is now, we got into it because I had a conversation at a graduation celebration with a student who was going into a genetic counseling master's program. And I got to asking her, why, why genetic counseling? And she said, well, it's a, it's a wonderful tweener she said, I am a sciencey person, but I love psychology. And I really wanted something that would allow me to bring those things together. And, you know, inside, you know, you know, when the good ideas kind of uh, ignite, you know, for me, it was like all the, all the little whistles. All the neurons started firing. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow, that's a great idea because psychology and biology were two big majors for us. And I knew that we had a lot of science students graduating who didn't want to go into the traditional sciencey kinds of programs. And she was a great example. So that was the beginning of our deciding to pursue genetic counseling. You know, um, I have a, one of those that I think is really interesting right now. Um, one of the fastest growing programs, actually the fastest growing program in the United States is cybersecurity. Um, but the tech side of that, I think, scares a lot of people away. Yeah. I think they have to be coders. Yep. When you get into the real requirements for cybersecurity, you find out that the weak link in it is generally not code, it's people. It's the people, um, exactly. My favorite joke was somebody saying, 
you know, if we just got rid of all the, all the, you know, students, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have this problem anymore. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You wouldn't have a, a, a university, but you also would have less security problems. Um, so what that opens up, and as we've been doing this ourselves, it turns out that an awful lot of the requirements for something like ISO 27001 um, uh, security uh, compliance are qualitative. And yeah. they're writing projects. What is your disaster recovery plan? Well, that's a written document that somebody has to actually sit down and write. And it's not super technical. Um, right. you, know, you have to be conversant with technology, but you absolutely do not have to be able to code. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a whole side to cyber planning um, and cyber and, and the human side of cybersecurity that is very approachable for people with who are willing to to learn about tech, but no, never expect that they're going to be a coder. Um, and by the way, might be good writers and logical thinkers. Um, yeah. And I think it would open that field up tremendously. Um, so it's, it's just an example of the same kind of thing you're talking about. And that happened to be triggered for me by, you know, what we're going through as a company and realizing the scarce resource. I mean, my techies were scarce too, don't get me wrong. Um, but I could hire people who do the tech side, but I couldn't find this anybody who would actually sit down and interview out of my management team what our disaster recovery plan should be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's that was it's interesting to hear you say that. This was the thinking behind our initial uh foray into cybersecurity. And this was several years ago. We were an early adapter in this field. We we brought up a master's fully online in cybersecurity again before most other schools had programs in the region and what you just said is exactly what we heard from a consultant we hired from the UK who had been in uh, cybersecurity and he actually worked for the, for, uh, the palace um, in terms of security. And he told us exactly what you said, that the main problem with cybersecurity, it's not the technology, it's the people. It's um, and everything that's wrapped up in that. So our first master's degree was very people oriented. Now we were ahead of the curve and it took a while, you know, for that to catch on, but, and maybe we didn't market it as well as we could have. Um, but I think, I think that's a really important, important point. Yeah. And it's a, you know, part of its branding, you know, a lot of people in this want, there are certain credentials you have to get. Um, yeah. And I don't know that they're necessary for the kind of person we're talking about, um, you know, CISSP kinds of things. Right. Um, and then there are just some very big dominant players online that have NSA level uh, support. You know, if you're University of Maryland uh, global campus, you do happen to be literally across the highway from the national yes. uh, from, from right. the NSA. Um, that's kind of an advantage. <laughs> uh, and but credit them for taking advantage of it, right? I mean, many would have sat there and and looked across the street and not built that program, um, right? So, uh, but well, I that's, think, uh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you're bringing up another great point: is that oftentimes uh, the 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 ideas for new program possibilities for growth are right in front of you. You know, I like to say every institution has untapped assets that if you could reframe the way you are looking at what's around you, there are hundreds of opportunities. I have yet to find an institution that has no one, that has nothing. 
Um, but it, but it, way, it's all, by the way, but it, but it all has to do with the framework and the mindset with which you are looking at the assets in front of you and in your backyard. And that was, that's a great, that's a, that's an obvious one, but you know, so, so cultivating that ability to see opportunities. And so, you know, some other things we talked about some, the competition is, can be a great source for just generating um, some thinking. So looking at what a neighboring institution is doing a new program and, uh, you know, delving in a little deeper and, and, you know, looking at, is there an opportunity here that we could do, but maybe do better or do differently? Um, you know, you, you bring the, up a really important point on competition that I, I like to emphasize, which is the fact that there's competition is universally true for any good idea. You exactly. know, um, I was yeah. very, uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess I was depressed by a comment a venture capitalist once made when I said I had an idea. He said, anytime you have an idea, Google it you're going to find that five to seven people have already thought of it and maybe have a business going in that space. And um, I viewed that as a negative, you know, I wasn't that creative. And then I realized, well, wait, why would I ever want to go into a space that nobody else was in? That's right. probably yeah. either I'm truly a genius or that's a bad idea. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and no. so uh, I often look absolutely. at competition and say, as you say, it's a source of ideas. It may be a source of students if they're not running a good program. Exactly. Uh, or if you can find a new way to do it. And so that's been my secret sauce, honestly, over the years is in doing the feasibility study for new program development. One of the questions that we always ask, and it these questions come after you've done your due diligence and you've gathered, you know, the data about who are the competitors you know, what does the market look like? Then you stand back, you look at all the data and you ask yourself, where's the hole? You know, where where is there an opportunity for us here based on our capabilities that could that could really enable us to do this in a, a really compelling way? So let me go back to genetic counseling again. When we did that exercise for genetic counseling, we looked at the competition and I can't tell you, Bob, how many people told us, oh, gosh, there's no way. There's no way your little school's going to be able to do genetic counseling. You've got the big the big players in your backyard. Well, yeah, we did have the big players. In fact, one of those big players essentially warned us off and told us not to even venture into their space or they were going to get us, if you can imagine that. But you know what we discovered when we did the market analysis is that nobody was doing it online. There were no fully online genetic counseling programs anywhere in the world. So we worked with the accrediting body and wound up bringing forward the very first fully online genetic counseling program anywhere. It became a trend. <laughs> we became the trendsetters. That's the other challenge. You know, you do this and you have to stay ahead of the curve. But what we discovered is that there's a market there were all of these people wanting to do a master's degree in genetic counseling, but they couldn't relocate. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to tap into an incredible market of students that were not being served. So, so for every new program idea, you know, asking those questions, but you have to do the, you have to pull the data together first and do yeah. the homework. But, 
there are so many opportunities if you, and that was really how the Doctrine of Health Science came about as well, because we realized that there are certain professions that do not have a terminal degree. So take PA, for example, physician assistant studies, and they don't have, they don't have a degree other than the master's in uh, physician assistant studies. And the accrediting body was not interested, still is not interested, I don't think, in bringing up a doctoral degree. And yet, if you are a physician assistant, assistant uh, and you want to become a faculty member and you work within an institution that requires a terminal degree, oftentimes you have to go get a terminal degree. And there really was no appropriate degree for folks in those kinds of professions. And there are actually quite a few professions in the health sciences like this. Yeah, nurse, nursing, you know, they do have a terminal nurse. Uh, they uh, do. Um, you know, it's it's similar to the issue you could have if you're a nurse practitioner. Yeah, um, yeah. So our doctorate of health science is wildly popular for just this reason. And mm -hmm. it draws people from a variety of health science fields. Um, and they tend to be people that want to teach. They want academic careers, right. you know, to marry marry that with their it, professional that, background. It, it's interesting. This wraps back to the accreditors because there are fields where um, the people who are best able to teach it intrinsically don't have a PhD. Yeah. Um, and yet the accreditor is going to require a certain number of PhDs to teach it. And so you end up in this uh, kind of a, a, a loop right where you you exactly. don't have the teachers you don't teach the people blah 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 um there are not a lot of them but there are a handful of spaces where it's, it becomes a real issue yeah 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 you know what i'm what i'm really talking about here i don't know are you familiar with the ansoft the ansoft matrix ansoft no. he's a he's a he's a mathematician from years ago um who developed this matrix that then began being used in marketing and uh, in R&D work in the mm -hmm. corporate setting. And I really like this matrix, using it as you are exploring um, new program possibilities or even what to do with existing programs that aren't growing anymore. Because oh, is this the existing markets, existing products? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm yeah, familiar yeah, yeah. matrix. I didn't know the name. Ansoff, A-N-S-O-F-F. But yeah. it's a wonderful little tool for opening up thinking about, well, maybe we could do this program in a different way. Maybe we would be able to expand our reach, for example, and this is the genetic counseling, if we did it online as opposed to on ground. You know, what if, what if we have another thing that has worked well for me, for us over the years, has been to look at where do we have a really good flow of revenue at the undergrad and what if we were to extend our reach to the graduate mm -hmm. market in a particular area that's relatively low risk right because you've got a built-in population that you can draw from if you go from the undergrad to the grad so when we went from psychology and then added on a master's in clinical mental health counseling we already had a built-in market that we could draw from for the master's degree um but it's, also, all, it's let's it's take that risk. idea and let's push on that a little bit because I do think this is one of those um, fundamental, relatively low risk. Um, there's still risk growth strategies, mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a few dimensions to it. So 
One is I take my undergrad program and I just tack on a normal graduate program. So yeah. let's take, you know, an MBA, that would be, you know, four plus two, right? Um, and I've got my undergraduate business students and so forth. Um, nursing, you could do that very easily. Um, maybe a little bit less so because clinicals you have to figure out as well. But, um, you know, and there are dozens, if not hundreds of other options like that. And especially for, I think this becomes a vital concept for small liberal arts colleges um, because they've, they've got the faculty uh, right. and they, they have the student body moving up. And I think um, they often lose students in programs where a graduate degree is required and not offered by the college. Um, so they not only lose the graduate student, they lose the undergraduate student who can go someplace else and track all the way through, whether they make it through the whole thing or not, it's a different question, but, or change their mind and take a different major. But um, as I headed with this, I, you know, I think that this, it, it's a, it is one of the more fundamental concepts about how to grow. Oh, I know what the other part is. Um, oftentimes clients come to me and they say, I think there's a synergy. I want to look for programs that leverage my existing faculty, my capabilities. Yeah. yeah. And um, by and large, if that's by adding on another program at the same level, there's a fundamental problem. Um, chances are, if it's leveraging your capabilities, that all you're going to do is take students you would have already gotten and have them walk across the hall um, from one program you have to another, not attract new students to walk into the building um, or into the campus and take your, so you're really mostly cannibalizing. One place where that's ruled out where you can't be cannibalizing is actually adding a grad program to an undergrad program. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, yeah. I find right. that one of the more intriguing strategies right now. Exactly. And, or um, adding a doctoral program on top of the master's program. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, you've you know, got you the entire pipeline. Just, yeah. You, you build that stack out over time. Um, exactly. And then with the changes yeah. in, uh, requirements often within a profession, you can take advantage of that as well, um, where then they move from requiring an undergrad degree to requiring a master's. I think if you don't move, again, the students are interested in that field are probably gonna go someplace else. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, it risks you at two levels. Yeah, um, no, totally. I, I agree. I agree with that. You know, other things you can do with that AMSOF. I just, I love the little matrix because what I find is that it opens up thinking about possibilities that you otherwise might not be uh, apt to think about that could be, you know, low risk right in front of you. You know, it might mean taking an existing program that you deliver in one way and delivering it in a, in a different way that brings you a different market that you're not getting yeah. because, you well, know, you're really landlocked. adding a dimension to the matrix. You know, the that matrix just for everybody who may not be familiar with it is, um, it, on one axis, you put product, current and new. Yep. Um, on the, let's say that's the X axis, the horizontal axis. On the vertical axis, you put market, current and new. Now, I would add a dimension to that in higher ed, though you could argue, but I would say channel or modality, modality really yep. being one, current and new is another dimension to that matrix. Um, so is it online or on ground? Um, and you know, I can extend that. And so I could, might reach a new market. I might, and that might also be require a new, a new modality. Um, uh, but not always, sometimes there are new markets I can reach with, with my existing say on ground courses or online, either one. Um, but extending it, you know, I think of this as their big programs that are almost entirely online. Let's take, um, 
nursing uh, the R and the BSN. Well, if I have a physical campus, and many of the people who do that do not have one, um, my campus is actually an asset. And so offering a hybrid of that where I, I, the folks do get to come in, albeit for a constrained amount of time, um, and get a physical, get to know each other, I think is a big advantage that um, the, the campus-based operators have competing against the big online guys. Um, because most people want to have a human experience. Um, they may not be able to fit it in their calendar very easily, but they'd like to have it if they could. So yeah. I think that yeah. idea of using modality is another dimension to that matrix. Um, you know, and, and arguably you could say it's just a variation on market, um, but in higher ed, it's a very distinct beast. Um, well, and then, and then you have the pricing piece as well. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, that's another uh, piece that you can consider you know, whether making that change would actually enable you to expand your market, um, you know, and that's, I've seen that strategy being used by, you know, Georgia Tech is maybe the, the, the one that's been most out front where they took their computer science program um, that was wildly successful on campus, but limited in terms of, you know, reach. And I think their on-campus program their master's program was like 70, 80,000. So they rolled out a $10,000 version of it entirely online and they wound up growing both. I mean, they reached thousands of but people through the I online think program. What they're doing with that, if I remember it right, they're offering that through one of the big um, portals, uh, uh, you know, the MOOCs. EDX. I think yeah. it's actually a. Um, mini masters but what it, it might what it does is it actually you get your first third of that program at very low cost on oh, uh one of i can't remember which platform right that's, now whether that's mit you know, that's mit's mba that's how they they do the I, mit i'm pretty sure georgia tech's doing the same thing and then you finish at georgia tech um but you, they've already pre-qualified you if you will so yeah i don't know unless they've changed they were delivering their in they were they were delivering their entire when they started their entire master's degree um, from beginning to end for ten thousand dollars entirely online and it was it's a great example however they're doing it now of this matrix of how you can you know take something and think about if we did it this way you know what what would be the impact in terms of our our outreach so right. to your question about growth how you think yeah. about growth possibilities there's one more dimension to that by the way that I've heard recently. I really only heard about this in the last month or so. Uh, it's not a new idea, that new an idea, but I hadn't heard of it. And that is looking at time frame. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Anything that can compress the time frame, especially for your um, graduate programs, becomes very attractive. Uh, I was going to go are, there last. You're, yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and there are a few people doing this, you know, uh, specializing in certain programs, offering them much like a, a, um, uh, an online program manager, an OPM, um, but their specialization is in taking programs that may even be an on-site program, but taking it from three years to two years or, you know, two years to one and a half um, and really having incredible success because people look at it and say, it's less money, less time. Same content. You know, the, you know, the challenge, and I'll give you an example. This is becoming very popular in the EDD market, the mm. doctorate of educational. There's a, there's a number of new providers out there offering two-year EDD programs. But what I'm hearing 
because uh, we get some of these students then in through the back door who start the program and they never finish. And so they wind up, excuse me, cut this out, right? Right. Yeah, I've got a cold, but uh, it gets in the way every once in a while. Um, the, uh, the challenge is that the infrastructure for some of these accelerated programs has not yet been fine-tuned so that the students are able to actually do it in two years. So they sign up for the program, but they're not making it through in two years. And I think the attrition rate is probably higher than what well, I would hope. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. I mean, I do think it's um, easy when you look at completion rates in general. Uh, there are a lot of folks who can't get through programs. Um, right. This would be especially true probably at the undergraduate level, but same. it happens at the graduate level, maybe for slightly different reasons. So when you compress it, you actually make that um, the intellectual challenge that the pressure on your time even greater. So you're you have to, I think those programs have to recognize they're appealing to a subset of potential yeah. candidates who can handle that level of pressure. Indeed. Uh, which now I'm going to take us off on a tangent, but um, <laughs> the mirror image of that that I, I, I somehow was unaware of, um, which is pretty astonishing uh, level of ignorance on my part. Um, I didn't realize how many people are paying for six years of education to get a four year degree. Yeah. I knew they were going through in six years. But I didn't realize they were being charged full price for every year. Um, and I think that's a scandal. I don't know what your thoughts are, but it's also a huge opportunity. Um, so I, I don't know, I'll chase that a little bit more, but what are your thoughts? You know what I mean? Well, say, say I want to make sure I understand. So give me so, an example if you would. Yeah. So most schools charge you a certain amount of money to attend for a semester. Right irrespective to a degree. Of oh, the block, many... you're talking about the block, the block tuition. Yeah. yeah. So if I take three instead of four courses a semester, I am not going to graduate in four years. Right. But I am going to pay for four years, full price. Well, whatever price I've negotiated, I should say, as much as I would if I'd finished my degree. So if, in order to finish, I've got to pay two more years, you know, potentially of education um, because I'm just not taking enough courses per semester. Yeah. So as a college, I've charged you one and a half times um, what it should have cost to get a degree. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's all part of the broken business model because I think I think the public is increasingly on to that. And I think it's harder for colleges, universities to get away with that than what used to be the case. I mean, I, I agree with you. I don't think that's ethical. Um, but it's normal. It's it is it is normal, but I think I think this is one of those things that we're going to see we're going to see changes. So I hope. Let's let's flip that around and say, okay, isn't this an opportunity to go out and say we'll only charge you for four years, no matter how long it takes you? Yeah. Right, and all of a sudden it's a value proposition element. Um, well, and well, that's the isn't that the governor's the uh, governor's state model? Isn't uh, that Western you governors? pay Western governors model? You pay as you go. You you pay you pay, you pay less. You pay less if you get done quicker. 
and they have all kinds of other tweaks in their thing too, because you can you can actually get credit for competencies and so forth that yeah. can yeah. very substantially decrease the amount of time required. Um, it's a little bit I, what I'm thinking of is a little bit different than theirs because it doesn't have the competency element rolled into it. Um, so you can't just test out of a class. Um, maybe you can, but it's it's I think of that as an independent variable. Um, but uh, I think the idea that you know you come here, you you know things may come up where you can't take a full load one semester. You shouldn't have to pay for a whole nother semester to get those that those credits. Um, so I, I just think it's one, of, and by the way, I don't know why the feds pay for that um, in financial <laughs> aid. That doesn't make any sense to me. No, uh, I would I, I would agree. So let, let me mention two other things I'm seeing that I think are actually really encouraging. One is this whole course sharing mm. model. So, you know, Acadium is a big one uh, for the, the independence RISE, the RISE platform that was really birthed out of Adrian College that allows colleges or universities to bring up programs by by essentially borrowing the curricula that's available through the RISE platform. So it makes it much easier. So I don't know if you're familiar with the RISE platform, but you can actually, you become a member, you can use an entire program that is being delivered by another institution to start new programs with a much, much lower cost and investment. So it's it's much less risky. Right. And uh, I'm amazed. I, I, I'm really surprised more schools aren't um, are adopting this. And I think part of the challenge for some schools is that their faculty don't like the idea that, you know, the curricula is being taught by another school mm -hmm. um, online, but it is a, it's really a brilliant model for growing your programs without having to make the upfront investment. Yeah, um, you get started yeah. and then you can fill it out as you go. Exactly. And if you're a smaller school, the other thing with these cost or these course sharing models is that you can continue to offer really robust and interesting offerings Mm -hmm. uh, at the upper levels, your students can have access to these, you know, these huge catalogs of courses that you'd never be able to offer. So, so you, you can give your students the best of all possible worlds, right? They can right. have the small, intimate college environment, but take all these interesting courses, if you accept them, online with students from around the country, you around know, so around the world it makes for a it makes for a really rich wonderful you know have your cake and eat it too kind of experience yeah. um i think that i think that being very important um because when you you know we talked about cost management earlier where the cost really happens um is not at the program level is at the course level that's what yeah. you have to teach um and as you say you know these are an example i could have that program i may not teach it so but um, if I've got three people sitting in a class with a full professor, that's very, very expensive. Um, exactly. And yeah. so uh, it's really managing the number of small courses that where you find the cost savings. Uh, yes. And these things give you an opportunity to do that in both directions, right? One is I've only got three students. I should just stop and let somebody else teach that. The other is I've got the best professor of whatever it is right here. I should open that course up. 
to all those other colleges so that more students come into that class and effectively make the numbers work. Um, so either direction, I think, is extremely exciting for a school. Um, and I love the idea of using it as a way of launching new programs because there are areas where the, the issue is there's not enough faculty to go around. Cybersecurity right. is one of them. There just aren't enough people to teach that right now. Well, if I can take that person through the foundational stuff of computer science and my existing computer science program, and then have them tack on the specialized material um, towards the end for um, cybersecurity, you know, I've, I've got a, a very big new program on my campus, relatively little investment. And yet when I find a faculty member, maybe I'll, maybe I'll teach that myself, or yeah. depending on the quality of what I can get through these course sharing networks, maybe that's not even a good idea. They may have really outstanding professors. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it, exactly. So, um, and you I know, think curating other... those will be really important too, which is, oh, I, you know, I, yeah. um, I, I may say, look, to get credit at my school, it's not the full menu. Here are the courses in cybersecurity where I've gone and vetted them. And those really are great courses. Um, so, and by the and way, that's how that's, it, and that's right. how it works. So, yeah. it, so that does allow the faculty then to have some input in terms of what they choose. Um, the other, the other thing that I think we're going to see more of that I think is exciting, but it is, uh, in terms of change, a little bit more disruptive is this whole notion of alliances, mergers, I guess is the, the most radical way to look at it, but, um, you know, finding ways for schools to come together and pool their offerings so that, you know, the students uh, in a particular consortia can take courses, you know, from, you know, the other, the other schools. And so you've got the Fen colleges of the Fenway. It's a great example there in Boston. Um, you know, Goodwin University recently bought the University of Bridgeport, but the two schools are, for all practical purposes, they're, they're still separate, but mm -hmm. they are aligning their programmatic offerings uh, in a way that is so, so smart in terms of their geographic market. So, you know, I think, so that kind of strategic, you know, thinking strategically, who are the other players? Who are the other institutions in your backyard? And how might we map out all the things that we offer among us and maybe, you know, re rethink so that, let's say you're a women's college, then of these five or six institutions, that, that becomes your thing. You mm -hmm. know, maybe another institution is the health science champion. So rather than all five schools offering the same program, you know, thinking strategically across the five schools as to what is the expertise of each institution and how can we, you know, uh, operate collectively. You know, we retain our campuses, but we operate collectively on behalf of everybody so that our students have access to the whole thing, you know. Yeah, I, I'm less excited about that amongst colleges of the same type, you know, four-year yeah. degree, for example, versus graduate school. Um, because I don't know why I would go to the college that's not offering my program if the other one does. Um, yeah. You know, it just, it's, it, it, there's, it, it's a little bit like that comment we had before about, um, you know, uh, cannibalization. Um, so, but if you say community college to college, that's a whole different discussion. 
And right. I don't think very many people do a good job of cultivating their local community college. Most colleges are looking at, I don't know, um, by the time you get to junior year, they may have lost 20 to 40% of their students from attrition through the years. Well, who's coming out who's ready to fill those seats? The answer is all the graduates of the, um, you know, the, the related programs from the local community college. And to what extent are you tapped in? To what extent have you got an articulation agreement? Um, how hard do you make it for those community college students to transfer their credits? You know, all those things, those are very bright students in many cases, big market, lots of them. And, you know, are we really carrying them? Are we integrating in, a, in the same way you're thinking of, but now it's vertical instead of horizontal. Same thing for grad school, right? I could very easily be piping people into another school that has the grad program in X um, if I don't want to offer it myself, which is a different dialogue. But, um, you know, that's another way of applying that same concept to integration of portfolios, um, which I think there's, it's a, again, uh, I actually think uh, the course sharing makes more sense for the horizontal um, because, yeah. it's, you know, it, it has more, first of all, there are more choices. Um, and second, it's less obvious that I can't just go to that campus over there and take this program. Um, but I think vertically, it's fascinating to think what, what can be done, especially if you do the three plus two, three plus one, Say for the we talked about the MBA or something like that exactly across yeah. two campus across two schools. Now we're talking about a real value proposition to the student. Um, another one I've heard of like that, by the way, is um, pre-engineering. You'll get schools where they, you know, they're they're not willing to stand up a mechanical engineering program, but they are willing to teach pre-engineering, mm. um, and then they have an articulation agreement with, you know, often a specialized engineering school who'll take their uh, sophomores and, and in their junior and senior, you're given an engineering degree. What happens in practice, as you probably know, what engineering is, an awful lot of people don't stay in engineering after freshman or sophomore year. You know, right. the material is just too rugged. Well, you end up capturing all those students um, and you're teaching the part of engineering that's not super expensive. You know, it's the introductory courses and so forth, as well as the gen eds. So from an economic standpoint, that's very attractive. Um, and then in practice, an awful lot of the students aren't actually going to transfer out. They're going to stay at your institution and finish up, but not in engineering. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. All good. So you want my top 10 learnings? Sure. This, is, this is a good thing to, to end on. I have a I have a top 10 little list of, you know, what are the what are the things that are really, really critical and important? This is really, you know, for for chief academic officers, people that are trying to lead lead growth and change so and some of this comes from people I've interviewed you know so the first one has to do with the importance of honoring and 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 also updating your core mission and purpose you know one of the things I heard from presidents time and again is that to whatever extent you can innovate in a way bring up new programs whatever in a way that you are uh, aligning with or leveraging your core DNA in some way, you will be more successful in the long run. John Fry at Drexel um, is a master at having done this. You know, he he uh, speaks oh, so passionately about the vision of A.J. Drexel, the founder, and how so many of the new innovations they're doing now harken back to A.J. Drexel's original vision, you know, of being a community based kind of institution and the programs that have emerged from that. And so 
Now that's that's not always possible. If you are on the brink of going under, <laughs> and you don't, uh, you know, you have no oars to paddle with, you know, you may have to make a radical change. But I'm struck by how many of these leaders talked about connecting your innovations, your growth strategy to your core and to your mission um, in some way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's one. Second one is the the fact that program and revenue dis- diversification are paramount and something you cannot lose sight of. Um, now, obviously, there has to be a strategy. You have to be disciplined in how you do it, but you just can't sit back and rely on whatever has worked in the past, you need to be continually leaning forward and thinking about, you know, how can we do this differently? How can we expand? You know, what new revenue source might we cultivate? Um, and and frankly, I think the urgency around that is more critical today than it, it has ever been. Uh, a third is that even when times are tough, never ever stop investing for the future. I like to call this the 2030 strategy. You know, I hear a lot of people talking about their 2024, 2025 strategy, the demographic cliff, right? What are we doing about the demographic cliff? I want to hear more people talking about their 2030 strategy. You know, what's what's the growth, the innovation that's going to catapult you into the future in a way that is going to be exciting? And oftentimes that, that's a different strategy than the thing that's going to get you to the next year or mm-hmm. the next two years, right? Well, pretty much um, entropy is going to get you to next year for better, for worse. Yeah, but do you, how many people do you hear talking about their 2030 strategy or their 2040 strategy? Right. Right? So, you know, avoid the temptation that's kind of related to rest on your success. Success, you know, this is such a dangerous thing. You know, when you have a little success, you tend to buy into this notion that whatever it is that you did to become successful is the exact thing you need to continue doing. Mm-hmm. And so then you stop, you kind of lose the capability of seeing things differently. Um, and so you have to be really careful once things start to go well to not not lean in and get too comfortable. Um, because just as you do, things change. Yeah. Things are always changing, right? Um, finding the market gap, the value proposition that you and you only are uniquely equipped to meet and then leveraging it to your maximum capacity. You know, that, we, we talked a little bit about that, but every school has one, right? Um, if you're willing to to really spend some time, some time looking for it, uh, not being afraid to copy others, just make sure you do it differently and you do it better. Um, here's my favorite one. Uh, when, when balancing operating efficiencies and market responsiveness, you always want to err on the side of what market responsiveness. And that's, if I, I'd be, I'd be a wealthy woman if I could, you know, count the number of times I have heard institutions talking again about the, everything they're doing to streamline, to, um, to become more efficient. I want to hear about the growth. I want to hear about how are you responding to the market? You know, the the other side of it. It's, you know, the, the 2030 strategy. And Go very ahead. Too, very much too often, people don't realize that the fastest way to improve your operating performance is to grow. 
If you well, want to improve that? lower cost, what, per, lost, be lower cost per student credit hour, put more students in the classroom. Exactly. Um, and you, know, you don't have to put them in the crowded classrooms, put them in all the ones with five to 10 students in them. One more so, student is a 10 to 20% increase in productivity. It's so obvious, but why do they not get it? I think it's an attitude. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it comes out of a, you could call it an austerity mindset. And uh, you have to be super careful with that. It, you got to be a good uh, husband of resources. Um, on the other hand, I completely believe that, you know, responding to markets in a timely way um, and taking advantage of those is going to be lead to a much healthier institution. Uh, yeah. I have seen occasional companies that manage to make it, again, it used to be in that field, by engineering their cost structure. Uh, but most of those uh, died. Um, yeah. You know, and, and the innovators, some of them died too. Um, but, you know, they got a much longer runway um, in many cases. Well, and that's my next one is beware the scarcity mindset. It'll kill you. You have to commit to a practice and discipline of a growth mindset and agile thinking. You know, and there's a lot, there are a lot of practices. I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on this. There are a lot of uh, practices that leaders can adapt uh, to train themselves to become more agile in their thinking. It's not necessarily a natural thing. Mm -hmm. a lot of people because it, it it doesn't feel comfortable um but it it really is a discipline that is so so important um and so you know the 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 other i don't know if i'm up to 10 or not but you're up to, you know, up to the, seven by my count all right so don't be afraid to rewrite the rule book is one you know do it differently you know throw out the rule book you know, and this is, you know, my example of genetic counseling. Who says genetic counseling can only be delivered, you know, on ground? So mm -hmm. think about, you know, mixing up the calendar, mixing up, you know, throw out the way that people tell you it has to be done and think, be willing to think differently. Exploiting synergies, that's that whole notion of, you know, the opportunities are right in your backyard if you're able to cultivate an ability to see them. Um, don't be afraid of the messiness. That's another one of my favorite. You know, I, I see, I'm seeing too many institutions these days that want, they want to make everything fit nice and neat into a box, into categories, into labels. You know, they, um, you know, they, they don't, they, there's a fear of embracing, um, the people even in the organization who are, uh, you know, uh, who don't conform, the non-conformist. And, and yet some of the best innovations, some of the best ideas come out of the messiness. Um, and, you know, if you try to tack everything down, you, you lose, you know, you're diminishing the opportunities. Um, this is what happens when you're closing your mind off. This is what happens when I call it the registrar mindset, you know, when, <laughs> when the registrar's mindset is allowed to, you know, weigh in a little too heavily in terms of the whole academic, you know, program, uh, portfolio and maintenance. Or scheduling. And... Scheduling, yeah. You've got one more. All right. My, I'm, I just lost my iPads. We've been on here a long time. Yeah, we have. Two um, hours. So... I think 
So the other thing, um, and it has to do with design thinking. Mm. Uh, if I, you know, I'm I'm transcripting, I'm, I'm analyzing the transcripts of the interviews that I've done. And one of the themes that I am struck by is how many of these, what I'm calling ingenious leaders, um, are employing design thinking skills and capabilities, even though I don't think they're necessarily aware of it, but they they think like design thinkers. And, and by that, I mean that uh, they, they start, uh, when they talk about ideas and some of the innovations they're most excited about, and I asked them how they came about, how these things came about, it almost always came about as a result of deep listening and paying attention to what was what was around them um, and taking in, being able to take random disparate information and connect the dots so as to set the stage, set the conditions really for new ideas and ways of thinking to emerge. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, you know, design thinking starts with really paying attention, listening um, to, you know, whoever is associated with the particular problem that you're trying to address. And I was struck with a lot of these leaders, how much wisdom came out of that kind of, that kind of process. And then being dot connectors, you know, right. and connecting all of that wisdom, that information they gathered to the new opportunities that eventually eventually emerged. Super. Well, thank you very much. I feel like we just got started. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think I'll be back to you. I think there are a couple of these ideas where I'd like to reform the words a little bit um, and, and flesh them out. Uh, so uh, we'll definitely be back in touch and schedule a follow-up. And uh, I hope that you're excited about uh, potentially doing that again. Oh, I'd be happy to. These are my, I, I love talking about this sort of thing. And I have a lot of optimism for the future of higher ed. And I know you do too. So I do too. And I think, I think I'm on a campaign to get rid of some of the myths um, as a side job. You know, this whole idea that college is not worth it. Yes. It's just wrong. I mean, it's not even ambiguous. Um, you yeah. know, the numbers that come out are it's a million dollars over your career. Well, that's actually kind of a lot of money. Even today, it's still a fair amount of money. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. You know, I'm not sure where these where this stuff is getting traction. Um, but I think one of the things we have to do is people, if we're in this higher ed space, is uh, be clear about the value proposition. Exactly.